You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've basically been living at work, so I'm a little burnt out this week, not gonna lie. It's also been pretty hot again in LA, and I refuse to go outside because it's too hot. And I'm also kind of conserving energy and money because I'm going to a very famous blonde woman's concert on Wednesday, so I've got to get, like... I've just got to bank as much extrovert energy as I can because that is not my natural state. Anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Insidious the Red Door. Now, I've been very hot and cold with the whole Insidious franchise. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know I love horror. I did a spooky theme in the middle of the summer, like last month. So, you know, I love some scary. I loved the first Insidious one and the next two, they they exist. Or the next three. There's five now? Next three exist. And then this one also exists. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the behind the scenes was to get this film together, this fifth Insidious film. But the final product was a boring hot mess. It was also star Patrick Wilson's directorial debut. And I've loved Patrick Wilson since like Phantom of the Opera, like almost 20 years ago, which feels disgusting to say because 20 years ago. I've been a fan of his work forever. I've seen a good chunk of his body of work for better or for worse. And I hate to say it, but dude does not have directorial instincts. It was bad. I mean, you can always get better, but if you've been on a film set for as long as that dude has, and that was your instincts on how to direct a movie, it, I don't hold up a lot of hope for that. Um, Speaking of hope, hopefully Sony, I think it's Sony that distributed this, and Blumhouse will finally put this franchise to rest. It's done. They've tried different angles. You had You had a good thing. You should have left it at one movie. Now we've got five of them. <laughs> On to strike updates. And my, oh my, you guys, we've got strike updates. On Friday, so yesterday is recording this, but two days ago when you're hearing this, if you listen on release day, the Writers Guild and AMPTP returned to the bargaining table to try and work out a deal and reportedly immediately hit two major stalemates. It was two of the reasons they walked away in May, so shock horror. Uh, If you don't know, the first one was that the AMPTP will not guarantee a minimum number of writers' room staffing. So how many people minimum will be in each writer's room? They want that to vary from show to show and need to need. And they will also not guarantee a minimum weeks of employment. And the WGA will not bend without a deal that guarantees those two things. And AMPTP calls that a non-starter. So that's the first one. Seems like there's a lot of stuff in there, but that's just point number one that they can't agree on. And the second thing is, is that the Writers Guild has stated that they will refuse to cross the SAG after picket line or any picket line in the future for that matter, even if they reach a deal with the AMPTP. 
The AMPTP has obviously refused to honor that because what's the point in making an agreement if nothing changes? And every time they have a disagreement with anybody, the entire industry shuts down. This was an issue during the 2008 negotiations. I'm not super versed on the negotiations since then. I'm sure it came up, but it's basically... It kind of gives off a little bit of my, can my girlfriend come vibes. If they can't go, I'm not going to go. It's definitely giving that. And it's not how, you know, you run a business. So obviously the AMPTP is very much against this and that's never going to get through either. Let's be honest. So from this meeting that occurred, no official date has been set to reinitiate negotiations. I think it was kind of like a check, check the waters and the waters are still pretty, uh, pretty icy. And so no official date has been announced, but that is expected to be announced soon. So the writer strike enters its 14th week, I believe is what we're at. I'm not sure if we count the first week or not. So it's the 14th or the 15th week. And here we go. Still going. And now on to the goods. This month, we're going back to Fact Town, and it is another chapter in our international cinema series. And this time we're looking at cinema markets of the Americas that aren't traditional U.S. cinema. So this week, we're taking a trip south of the border to Mexico to see how cinema formed in that country and developed from there. As always, because there's always one person who goes, well, you didn't mention my favorite person, blah, 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 blah. These are speed runs. These cover the major movements of a country's market and how they shaped their modern industry. So when you're doing like the big brushstrokes, not everybody gets in. But, you know, it's I, I make these episodes with the intent to one day be able to go back and expand on everything, you know, depending on how long I do this podcast, which is, you know, also no end in sight. So I'll, I'll, I'll be podcasting until the strike ends. So I'll be pod, I'll be doing this podcast forever. Anyway, it's 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 been a weird week. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Regular listeners, you're not going to believe this, but cinema first reached Mexico in the form of the Lumiere Brothers' Cinematograph. Mexicans began lining the streets of Mexico City to see the Lumiere's films starting in the summer of 1896. They were imported by Claude Ferdinand Bon Bernard and Gabriel or Gabriel Veyer. It's another month of me butchering names, but I just say high school Spanish, so at least I've got a chance this week. Gabriel Veyer. Veyer was contracted by the Lumieres specifically to spread the cinematograph throughout several countries in South America, including Mexico. On August 6th, 1896, Mexican President Porfirio Diaz held a meeting with Bon Bernard and Veyer at his place, and eight days later, the exhibition of films for the press occurred. So he wanted to get people's eyes on this new art form. Nine days later, President Diaz made the films widely available to the public at large, and film in Mexico expanded rapidly from there. Diaz had recognized the importance of cinema faster than most, 
and soon appeared in many short films himself, which depicted him in action with his cabinet or in public exhibitions or in town squares or doing speeches, obviously with no sound because sound is 20 years off at this point. But, you know, seeing your president for the first time moving and being able to distribute that far and wide through your country is a pretty, pretty powerful tool. One such example of these, this type of film occurred in 1906 in La Entrevista de los Presidentes Díaz Taft, which showed the first ever meeting of a U.S. president and Mexico. So obviously Howard Taft and President Díaz. This was also one of the first filmed news reports ever produced in Mexico. This particular one was filmed by the Alva brothers, Salvador, Eduardo, and Guillermo, who were part of the documentary movement in early Mexican cinema. The first fiction film to be created in Mexico was based on a duel between two deputies called Duelo a Pistola en el Bosque de Chapultepec. Other early Mexican films featured dances from plays, characters from folklore, and also pretty, pretty strong depictions of violence. In these early days, film was known as vistas, which was Spanish for views. And, you know, who really hated views was the Catholic Church and also the press. They didn't like it much either. But the Catholic Church didn't like it because the violence and the type of women that were portrayed in these films, they weren't always virginal little saints and they did not like that. So they protested against them. But Mexican cinema, as you will soon see, had to deal with extreme censorship and the Mexican filmmakers just kind of learned how to roll with it. The face and arguably non-businessman father of early Mexican filmmaking is generally considered to be Salvador Toscano Bergen. In 1898, Toscano Bergen made the country's first film with a traditional plot called Don Juan Tenorio. During the Mexican Revolution, which kicked off 12 years later, Toscano Bergen shot several sequences of actual battles, which would eventually be edited into a full-length documentary in 1950 called Memories of a Mexican by His Daughter. By 1906, 16 movie theaters had been opened to accommodate the growing demand for movies in Mexico City. This was also when the first film distribution companies began popping up in the country to make sure films reached beyond the capital. Starting in 1911, carpas, or tent shows, became popular, which were variety shows that allowed lower-class citizens to attend shows with body humor and theatrical plays. It was very similar to, like, vaudeville, like, in the United States. It was basically the Mexican version of that. And like vaudeville, carpas would become a training ground for the soon-to-be film stars of the Mexican screen. While President Diaz was obviously an important figure when it came to getting cinema into Mexico, dude wasn't the best dude to the majority of his people. Despite the prosperity the country enjoyed on the outside, mostly by the upper-class citizens, many Mexican people were against his rule due to the economic inequality his policies caused and the lack of protection for the citizens who worked on Mexican land that President Diaz had allowed foreigners to purchase. Naturally, there was hella corruption, which led to the extreme poverty for 90% of the Mexican people. Diaz had seized control of the country in 1876 via a coup, and by 1910, the majority of the Mexican people were done with the nearly 80-year-old president, who kept promising to retire only to rig elections and re-elect himself. He's like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm just, oh, I'm so old and so tired. I'm going to retire. Just kidding. I'm going to do it again. So that's basically what this guy was doing. 
members of the No Re-election Party, an anti-porfiriato, which is the name historically given to Diaz's rule, party, had grown tired of the president's nearly 35-year reign, and unrest began brewing in the rural areas. When Diaz claimed in 1908 he would not be running for a 7-3 election, Francisco Madero, a member of the non-re-election party, announced his candidacy. Diaz, you know, the guy who said he was done being president, got pretty salty that this Madera dude was running on a no re-election platform and was actually getting very popular doing so. So Diaz had Madero arrested and then declared himself the winner of the election he wasn't going to run in, which turned out to be another rigged election in June of 1910. Madero was released from prison not long after, and he fled to the U.S. where he published a plan to get the country back and called for a revolt on November 20th, 1910. This first wave was successful and Diaz would give up his power in May of 1911. What followed was a long and bloody struggle among several political factions with constantly shifting alliances, which resulted ultimately in the end of Diaz's rule and the establishment of a constitutional republic. It is known as the Mexican Revolution. So obviously a country with a major conflict within its borders caused a delay in fictional film content being produced. It was obviously not a priority, but since that is our priority, we had to take a peek and see what was going on there. So during this initial unrest, major battle, and actually throughout the whole Mexican Revolution, major battles were filmed and broadcast which only increased the country's enthusiasm for film. They liked seeing the battles. It kind of gave them an insight into what was going on. And as a result of this, fiction films pretty much took a backseat. That was not a priority. Because of this essentially guerrilla-style filmmaking, documentary techniques were mastered throughout the Mexican Revolution by its filmmakers. A great example of this is the Alva Brothers film Revolución Orozquista from 1912. The film was shot in the camps of the rebel and federal forces during the battle between General Victoriano Huerta and the rebel leader Pascual Orozco. Despite the new in-country advancements of cinema at this time, the policies of now President Madero, he had been elected formally in November of 1911, though he was low-key ruling since June of 1911, led to a campaign to save the lower classes from immorality through censorship, which would include heavy rules placed on cinema. Movie house inspectors were appointed and their wages were expected to be paid by film exhibitioners, but Madera was not around for long. After failing to keep his campaign promises, another rebellion formed, led by Emilio Zapata and Pancho Villa, to rid the country of Madero's rule and establish a form of government controlled by the peasant community. Madero would resign and was ultimately executed after a conflict known as the Ten Tragic Days, which occurred in February 1913, and Victoriano Huerta was elected the new leader of Mexico. Huerta was only in charge for 16 months because he basically just brought back the Porfiriato ways, and during this time, Mexican cinema experienced significant changes as even stricter censorship was implemented. Huerta would not allow depiction of crimes in films of the criminal got away with it in the end, or anything that would insult or question an authority or person, or morality or manners, or cause a crime, or cause public unrest. Basically, he just wanted, like, happy little cheery films. This era began to mark a shift away from documentary films to entertainment films. Even the Alva brothers, who'd made their name in documentary filmmaking, changed over to fiction films, mostly because you can't be critical of the regime and their whole thing was shooting battles, which arguably is being critical. But, you know, 
Semantics. Surprise, surprise. Nobody liked Huerta either. And another call to arms was made, this time with Governor Venustiano Carranza leading the way. This next conflict was known as the Constitutionalists' Revolution, which led to Huerta resigning and fleeing the country. As a result of the limitations placed on film content, as well as the radicalization of the parties involved in the armed conflicts, cameramen and producers began to display their opinion through the films they produced. For instance, favoritism towards the Zapatistas, a third party in the conflict led by Zapato, who was a major player in the constitutional uprising as well, was featured in the film Sangre Hermana from 1914. When Carranza refused to relinquish power after a conference of the revolutionary groups fell through, he established his own regime in January of 1915 after another man, Walio Gutierrez, was actually elected. Then a whole lot of chaos happened between January of 1915 to January of 1916, with the country changing leaders several times. I've got a link in the show notes if you want to follow that whole thing, but it's not super relevant to the film side of things. And after all of this, the First Continental Congress of Mexico finally kicked off. The Mexican Revolution came to an end in February 1917 after the creation of the Mexican Constitution, bringing rise to a new political and social structure for the country. Overall, filmmaking during the Mexican Revolution was a tool for the Mexican people to understand just exactly what was going on. It was it was a lot of chaos. Many film historians agree that rather than the Mexican Revolution being a repression for the film industry despite the rapid, you know, censorship, it was more of a motivator in the way it portrayed every battle and struggle. After all these years of conflict, Mexican cinema at this point closely resembled the Italian film movements of the era, particularly the film, the art or art films in Italy, which were basically melodramas. It didn't hurt that both countries were in a state of chaos and disorder around this time. There was a war going on in Italy while the revolution was raging in Mexico. The first Mexican film produced in this style was La Luz from 1917. As Mexico settled into its new government, film censorship was reestablished on October 1st, 1919. Films which illustrated acts of immorality or induced sympathy for criminals were prohibited once more. Also because, you know, basically a new country in place. By 1924, narrative films were at a seven-year low. There wasn't a lot of money and, you know, priorities. Overall, very few films were produced in Mexico during the 1920s due to the political climate and, of course, lack of money. The emergence of the American film market after World War I did not help matters, as those films were obviously imported quite extensively into the country. In response, several notable Mexican movie stars moved to the United States in the hopes of finding greener pastures. Other Mexican stars appeared in movies which were merely Spanish-language versions of Hollywood movies, which we'll touch on in a couple of weeks when we cover Mexican-American cinema. While Mexico had started early in cinema and boomed pretty early on, most of the country's cinema up to the 1920s has been lost and overall was not all that well-documented. In the mid-1930s, however, once peace and a modicum of political stability were achieved, the film industry really took off in Mexico. By this point, Hollywood's attempts to create Spanish-language films, as sound films had become standard in 1929, had failed, mainly due to the hodgepodge casting of Hispanic and Latin actors from different countries, and they just had them use their own accents, which were foreign to the Mexican people, and white people couldn't tell the difference. 
For people who think like all people who speak a language have the same accent, some people do believe that. Um, just just consider like if you took somebody from the deep south, somebody from California, somebody from Brooklyn, and somebody from London, and somebody from Toronto, and you put them all together and call them siblings, all raised in the same home, and just let them use their own accents, it's gonna be a little bit jarring. Yes, technically they are speaking basically the same language. There are you know affectations within each region dialect, but it's different enough that it doesn't make sense when you hear them all together and be like, nah, we're sisters. We all grew up together. It, it doesn't work. So obviously very jarring. It'd be jarring if you heard that in English or any language for that matter. So the Mexican filmmakers knew that they needed to make their own films for their own people. In 1931, the first Mexican talkie movie, Santa, meaning female saint, not bearded gift giver, released. The film was a blockbuster and to this day is considered one of the best Mexican films ever made. The film tells the story of a beautiful girl who's seduced by a soldier and marries him against her family's wishes. But her soldier abandons her, leaving Santa destitute. The young woman is forced to turn to sex work and becomes a famous working girl as a result. These years harden the once innocent Santa. The film starred Lupita Tovar, whom had made a name for herself in the U.S. and was contracted by Universal at the time of production. And while this was a huge feat for Mexican cinema, it does bear mentioning, however, that Hollywood did have quite a major hand in the production of this film, as the film's director, star, and crew were largely imported from Hollywood. But still, progress is progress. Also occurring around this time, starting in like the early 20th century, though, many intellectuals and artists from the European avant-garde scene had become fascinated by Latin America, but more than anything, Mexico. They were very fixated with Mexico and the art and the political things that were going on and all of that. And one of these individuals that was particularly struck with the country was Russian filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein. In 1927, Eisenstein had met Mexican muralist Diego Rivera, who was visiting Moscow for the celebration of the Russian Revolution's 10th anniversary. After the two met, Eisenstein was determined to visit Mexico. He did, and he ultimately attempted to make the film Que Viva Mexico from 1931, which was a travelogue of sorts that went unfinished for decades. And it's several different versions of it exist. It's got a weird backstory. By this time, Mexican audiences were watching mostly melodramas, crude comedies, as well as Spanish-language versions of Hollywood movies. But Eisenstein's visit to Mexico inspired directors like Emilio Fernandez and cameraman Gabriel Figueroa, and the number of Mexican-made films increased and improved once they saw this guy's style of filmmaking. This, amongst other things, led to the golden age of Mexican cinema that coincided with several other countries' versions. By 1947, film would be Mexico's third biggest industry. While World War II raged for the majority of the world, the film industries of these regions were severely affected, those that were at war. Mexico, however, who didn't join the war until much later, 1942, for better or worse, got the opportunity to thrive now that the foreign film import was severely affected or the films that were being made were focusing more on war, as was the case in the U.S. This absence in competition allowed the country to develop their own unique cinematic voice. During World War II, the Mexican film industry would make a more diverse portfolio of films to become dominant in the markets of Mexico and Latin America, edging out Hollywood for the first time, who in addition to the increase in war films had decreased its overall output. 
The symbolic start to the golden age of Mexican cinema is widely regarded to be Vamanos con Pancho Villa from 1936, as it told the story of one of the country's great revolutionaries. Also films about the Mexican Revolution, obscenely popular at this time. But overall, the golden age of Mexican cinema covered multiple genres and saw the rise of many important voices of the Mexican film scene. Going into the 40s, the Mexican film industry would remain a little unstable and rocky, however, until about 1942. Things changed after Mexico's National Bank initiated the Banco Cinematográfico, or Cinema Bank, to fund private film producers. Plus, once they entered the war, the U.S. provided Mexico with film stock and cinematic equipment, and as a result, the Mexican film industry was able to enter a new era of stability and success. The major Mexican film studios had also established roots in Mexico City by this point, and just everything being centralized, just started pumping out films. Among these studios were Clasa Films, Filmex, Films Mundiales, Cinematográfica Calderón, Películas Rodríguez, and Producciones Mier y Brooks. So here's kind of... You know, the the big brushstrokes of films that were popular during the Golden Age. Mexican-produced comedy films had been pretty rare in the early days of Mexican cinema, with most audiences preferring the likes of Charlie Chaplin and some of the other silent Hollywood figures. And because it was the silent era, that meant that there was no language barrier, so him being an Englishman making films in Hollywood didn't really matter so much. All they had to do was change the intertitles, and that was relatively easy to do. It also didn't hurt that most of the themes of those films were pretty universal. Universal. They were slapsticky. They were schlocky. It was they weren't schlocky. That's not what that word means. But yeah, just overall a very carefree good time. Once sound, of course, became a thing and the Mexican and Latin American people wanted people who sounded like them and looked like them, the Mexican comedy medium began to develop and thrive. The most notable artist to come out of this genre from this era was Cantinflas, whose first film, Aji Esta El Detalle, came out in 1940. The Cantinflas character was typically dressed as a poor man with pants that never stayed up, a worn-out t-shirt, a dirty rag on his shoulder, and a scraggly mustache. Many of the comedic films of the Golden Age took place in middle and lower class neighborhoods, also known as barrios. These films, while being funny, also brought awareness to the class disparity in Mexico. There was also the musical film genre in the country, which was strongly influenced by Mexican folk music or ranchero music. These films also gave a venue to further popularize the Mexican music scene all over the world. The late 40s brought a new genre, the cabaretera film, and cabaretera in Spanish means cabaret dancer, a.k.a. a vendete. These films were typically set in nightclubs and starred cabaret dancers, who in the films are thrust into a seedy world of crime and sexuality. As was the case in the film Santa, this was a life that was chosen for them, not when they chose for themselves. The genre is also characterized by extravagant costumes, flamboyant dance numbers, and Afro-Cuban music. Outside of comedy, the film noir genre that had been popular in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s was further popularized in Mexico during its golden age by Juan Orol. Inspired by the popular gangster film and figures of Tinseltown, Orol mixed elements of classic film noir with Mexican folklore, urban environments, cabaret, and tropical music. 
Examples include the classic film Gangsters vs. Cowboys from 1948 and Distinto Amancer from 1943. Now, of course, there was your dramas, your melodramas, your other standard stuff. Those continued as business as usual in Mexican cinema. They just started expanding further. But these were kind of like the ones that developed specifically out of the golden age. The 50s, unfortunately, were less kind to Mexican cinema overall, and the film industry stagnated as a result. Throughout all of this, many of the jobs had unionized, which instead of, you know, while providing safe conditions for the workers and, you know, them getting paid and all that stuff, it also kept new talent out of the industry and the films being produced by this point were becoming very tired and formulaic. On April 15th, 1957, the whole country mourned with the news of the death of Pedro Infante, who died in a plane crash. Infante had been one of the biggest stars of Mexican cinema during the Golden Age, and his death was one of the markers of the end of the Golden Age of Mexican cinema. It's certainly the symbolic one. The other reason, of course, that the film market had begun to stagnate was because of the television. The first Mexican television transmissions had started in 1950, and by 1956, TV antennas were quite common in Mexican homes. This competition forced the film industry to seek new ways to showcase its wares, not just in Mexico, but all over the world. As it happened in their golden age, technical innovations came from Hollywood to try and fix this. This included more advanced color film stocks, 3D films, and wider screen formats. At the time, though, the high cost of these technologies made it difficult for Mexico to compete, and their films dragged behind, taking years to incorporate these things into their own movies. So once again, Hollywood movies kind of became more popular within the country. But not everywhere. Outside of Mexico, one of the places where Mexican cinema was very, very popular was Yugoslavia. In fact, most of the country's screened films in the 1950s were from Mexico. The 1950 film Un Día de Vida, which premiered in 1952 in Yugoslavia, was one of the most popular films of the decade in that nation. The popularity of Mexican films led to the so-called Umex craze, as Mexican music and fashions were oft imitated in Yugoslavia during this decade. While the majority of the other filmmakers the world over at this time were benefiting from either relaxed censorship and a new wave and or neorealist movement, the opposite was arguably happening in Mexico. The industry had been further stalled by bureaucracy and difficulties with the union. Film production was now basically in the hands of very few people, and the ability to see new filmmakers emerge was very difficult due to the demands on the directors on the part of the union of workers of cinematic production. All of this led to three of the largest film studios shutting down between 1957 and 1958. Also in 1958, the Mexican Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which had founded over a decade before that, decided to discontinue the Ariel Award, which is basically their version of an Oscar, that recognized the best productions of the national cinema. The Ariel had been created in 1946 to celebrate the thriving state of the industry and was eventually revived in 1972 and thankfully has taken place every year for the last 50, 50 years, 50 years. But this whole era wasn't a total wash, and some highlights of the next several years would include the 1961 film The Important Man, which was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 1962. Additional films nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Films were 1960's Macario, 1962's The Pearl of Tlayucan, and 1975's Letters from Marusia. 
In the 1960s, the emergence of several film genres and styles began developing further that kind of define Mexican cinema to this day, mainly their horror and sci-fi or the horror and sci-fi coded. So let's take a look into some of that. The 1960s are considered a golden age of horror and science fiction in Mexico, but they had been around in a smaller form since before even the golden age had started. The Mexican horror film genre had started forming with the release of El Fantasma de Convento from 1934, Dos Monjes from 1934, and El Misterio del Rostro Palido from 1935. These three films were written and or directed, or both, by Juan Bustillo Oro, who is considered by many to be the father of the Mexican horror film. Oro would direct more than 60 films in his five-decade-long career. In those early days, though, the Mexican movie houses were inundated by melodramas and westerns, a practice that more or less continued into the 1950s. Meanwhile, on early television, Lucha Libre, professional wrestlers, became a full-blown craze. If you don't know what they are, they're the very, very extra wrestlers with the very, like, colorful masks. And these larger-than-life sportsmen would soon be adapted into cinematic heroes and villains capable of maddening feats of strength that were played straight. Eventually, Lucha Libre films implemented supernatural and sci-fi elements. They did things like vampires, robots, and mummies, the latter of which was by far the most popular, like lots of mummies. And this gave way to the Mexican horror genre to kind of break off and do their own thing. This began to happen in 1953, thanks to a loose adaptation of Frankenstein called El Monstruos Resucitado. Suddenly, the Western was taking second place on the screen to horror. 1957's El Vampiro was another big game changer for the Mexican horror genre. The film made an international name out of Fernando Mendez, the director who followed up his triumph with two further terrifying films, namely Misterios de Otra Tumba from 1958, which is about an unhinged dude who runs an insane asylum by day and gets into witchy nonsense when the sun goes down. While the artistry of these films was done by Mexican filmmakers, it was American producer Kay Gordon Murray who would take most of them and make them internationally known. Murray would acquire the films about 66 throughout his entire career, including, and it wasn't just horror films he was doing, he was also taking like fairy tale fantasies, adult films, and mostly all from Mexico, and he spread them widely, and that's one of the reasons that the genre spread the way it did. At the end of the 1960s, the movie theaters were full of all kinds of horror until the arrival of Carlos Enrique Taboada. With limited budgets, Taboada focused on strengthening the plots and characters of his horror films to keep the audience more captive, otherwise it was just kind of like schlocky chaos. Very entertaining, but you know, more of a spectacle than a story. And Taboada changed that. He was also a master at creating subtle images, but injecting that with terrifying context, which of course kept the cost down of his films, which was a huge plus at this point in time in Mexican cinema. If you want to check out some of his work to see an example of this, El Libro de Piedra from 1969 is a pretty good choice. 
A popular genre to come out of the 1970s was the Ficheras film, which are also known as Mexican sex comedies. The storylines of these typically revolved around themes of sexploitation and mexploitation, the latter of which is a low-budget film genre that combines elements of exploitation films and Mexican culture or portrayals of Mexican life, often dealing with crime, drug trafficking, money, and or sex. These films were known for being low quality and obviously quite cheap, and the genre peaked in popularity in the 70s and 80s. Although the films had sexually suggestive plots and used numerous innuendos, they were not overtly explicit and were never considered to be pornographic despite the name. Furthermore, it was not uncommon for the male characters in these films to comedically fail in their attempts to win over or have sex with the female characters. And when a man was successful in wooing a woman, the performances were deliberately over-exaggerated to generate laughter rather than horniness. After decades of producing basically just B-movies by international standards, the 1990s would see a seismic shift in international awareness of Mexican cinema. This helped in part by the new generation of filmmakers challenging those that came before, as well as blowing right past the gatekeepers. Before the 1990s, the Mexican film industry was primarily funded by the state. However, there was a decrease in Mexican audiences watching Mexican-produced films in favor of Hollywood blockbusters, so naturally this saw a drop in production, which increased after an economic crash in 1994. For the next five years, the state funded just five films per year, which is not a lot of movies, obviously. I don't have to tell you that. So... People found other ways to get their movies made. Many of the films that weren't funded by the state were shot on shoestring budgets, and some were even low-key made with drug money, because obviously the cartels are a thing in Mexico, though people tended not to really care so long as the movies were entertaining. The next generation of filmmakers mainly came out of the Mexican Film Institute, which was an agency of the Mexican federal government that supported the development of national film production and the film industry. These upcoming filmmakers were named the 1990s generation and were trained by the filmmakers of the 60s and 70s. These Mexican filmmakers wanted a cinematic market that showed contemporary issues and themes instead of relying on the tired cliches of the past. This generation would ultimately form what is known as the Nuevo Cine Mexicano, which is widely considered a rebirth of Mexican cinema because of the increased production of higher quality films. This rebirth led to international praise as well as box office success unseen since Mexican's golden age of cinema. One of the most successful filmmakers of the 1990s generation is someone I'm fairly confident you've all heard of, and that's Guillermo del Toro. His work was inspired by horror films, Mexican folklore magazines, his family's religion, fairy tales, and Frankenstein's monster. And the director began churning out unique horror films like The Invention of Kronos from 1993 and, of course, Pan's Labyrinth from 2006, which made him an international name. He's arguably the biggest director to come out of Mexico, I would say. There are two other people that could make an argument for that. And those two are, of course, Alfonso Caron and Alejandro González Iñárritu. And with Guillermo del Toro, all three of these men have had incredibly successful careers, both inside and outside of the Mexican film industry. All three have also won the Academy Award for Best Director and are frequently cited as the three amigos of cinema. The most recent triumph for Mexican cinema occurred in 2017 when Coron returned to Mexico to shoot his most intimate film to date, which was Roma. 
The film, distributed by Netflix, went on to critical acclaim and was the second Mexican movie to win the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film, and Coron got the Best Director Award. It also became the first Mexican movie to be nominated for both Best Picture and Best Foreign Language Film at the Academy Awards, while securing nominations for two of its stars. Roma did not take home Best Picture, but it did take home Best Foreign Language Film. I don't think that had anything to do with the quality of the film, I think that had more to do with the fact that Netflix was the distributor because everyone in the industry, as you can probably tell from the strikes, hates Netflix. Today, the Mexican cinema industry continues to thrive. It shows no sign of slowing down. A far cry from the struggling industry of 100 years ago. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to make the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee, Laura, thank you by name, and for making my job easy by just commenting on Facebook so I didn't have to log into another website. Thank you, thank you very much. Much. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're diving into the film history of the country on the other side of America. And of course, that is the Great White North, Canada. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.